Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish, in for Chris Cuomo, and welcome to the Primetime COVID Command Center. Not since the beginning of this pandemic have there been this many hospitalized with COVID in America. Not since February of 2020. About 80,000 are hospitalized, and we have vaccines now. That's what makes it especially tragic to see our hospitals on the brink once again. Five states have fewer than 10% of ICU beds available now. Alabama, Texas, Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi. Florida and Texas alone account for nearly 40% of new hospitalizations, more COVID cases than 30 other states combined. They also have defiant governors who appear to be siding with some notion of freedom rather than the combination of masks and vaccinations. We're about to talk to a county judge in Dallas challenging Texas Governor Abbott's order banning mask mandates. And listen to this dire warning he just gave to parents. But in Dallas, we have zero ICU beds left for children. That means if your child's in a car wreck, if your child uh, has a, a heart, a congenital heart defect or something, needs an ICU bed, or more likely if they have COVID need an ICU bed, we don't have one. Your child will wait for another child to die. The Texas Department of Health pushing back, saying the shortage of pediatric ICU beds in Dallas County is related to a shortage in medical personnel, saying they can't use beds that aren't staffed. But there's no question, hospitals are filling up with COVID patients across the country again, and with children in greater numbers. Those under 12 aren't eligible yet for the vaccines, and this Delta variant is more contagious than chickenpox. As for Florida, it just reported more COVID cases over the past week than any other seven-day period this pandemic, more than 151,000, and its governor, Ron DeSantis, is still defending his order to ban mask mandates in schools. Two elementary teachers and a teaching assistant died from COVID complications over a 24-hour period this week in Broward County, Florida, also someone with job ties to the school district. At least three of them were told were unvaccinated. It's tragic, but also speaks to the importance of protecting unvaccinated children from exposure and bolsters the argument for mask mandates. This comes just days before classes start in Broward County and it's only heightening concerns. On the whole, vaccinations are on the rise in America. Nearly a million doses were administered today, according to the White House. More than a half a million of them were first doses our single best immunization day in over a month. And there will be more shots in arms soon for some of the fully vaccinated. CDC advisors voted unanimously today to recommend a third dose for some of the 9 million immunocompromised Americans after the FDA gave the green light yesterday. Sooner than later, most Americans will need a third dose, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, but not at this time. The biggest battle right now is to find an antidote to all the division over vaccinations and mask mandates playing out across America. And that's where Judge Clay Jenkins comes in. He is the Dallas County official you just heard warning about zero pediatric ICU beds there. Judge, welcome to primetime. I understand you just had a legal victory today. What was it? The Court of Appeals denied Governor Abbott's request to stay the order. So for now, we have masks on our children in schools mask on people and, and employees in our businesses and people are safer here because of that. Is it a shortage of personnel or is it a shortage of beds? I explained the, the controversy to a limited extent in introducing you. 
Yeah, there's no controversy at all. When we talk about uh, beds in medical parlance, we're talking about the human beings and the equipment it takes to staff an ICU bed. So the the, the state uh, health department is correct. It is a shortage of personnel caused by the governor stopping the, the contract for temporary personnel that was greatly supplementing our hospitals. Then when they left, some of their friends went with headhunters for those same firms to go to other states and still more people took early retirement. So right now we have less personnel uh, to patient ratio than we've ever had before. Even though there's less people in the hospital now than at the height of COVID, there are less doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and every other type of, of uh, help needed than we've ever had before given that number, that ratio is off. So a bed is a staffed unit. You know that your governor, just like the Florida governor, portrays this as a matter of individual freedom. And to that, you say what? Uh, individual freedom does not extend to infecting uh, other people, to endangering children, um, and to uh, you know stopping our country from having its best chance to win the battle against COVID. This is team USA, and for that matter, human beings versus a virus. Shouldn't be Democrats, Republicans, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, uh, mask, you know, Karens versus people that are willing to put a mask on their face. Uh, this is all of us human beings um, against a virus, and that virus is relentless, and it doesn't care what your politics are. I know that you've had to put up with some blowback because of your position. Tell the audience what I'm referring to. Well, right now, and I don't, they're being quiet right now, but I've got a couple of hundred uh, people and their usual suspects, and they're standing out, and I'm um, on the street uh, chanting and, and holding up signs and otherwise disturbing my neighbors. I just saw a sign flash by that said, leave my four-year-old alone, I think held by a woman. What would you say to that, Mom? What would you say to that, Mom? Uh, the challenge is to protect the other four-year-olds as well. I care about your family and your child's freedom, but I also am listening to our generals in this war. And in a public health emergency, the generals are the doctors who trained their entire adult lives to advise us in this moment. There's not a, a dispute between our generals, whether at the local level or the national level, no doctors are saying masks are uh, bad and children and adults should not wear them. The doctors are all saying two things and it's the same two things. Get vaccinated, wear a mask indoors when outside your home. I saw a release from the attorney general and the governor that portrays you as an activist and attention seeker. Your response is what? Uh, my goal and my desire is to protect the people that I took an oath uh, and swore to protect and serve. And that's what I'm doing now. And that's what we all should do. This isn't about politics and it's not about polls. And I would remind uh, the governor and anyone else that is governing based on polls that polls change and they will change as this virus gets worse and worse and worse if we don't follow the advice of the doctors. We've seen this seesaw uh, throughout because we've got leaders who've lacked the grit to stick with the process. And the process is if we will do the mitigation needed until 
we can get the virus down low and reach herd immunity, we can win. If we continue to lack the courage to do it, then we're going to continue to see new variants come up, more problems like this happen, and it's going to affect our economy and our public health. Quick final question. I know you just had an appellate court win from the perspective of the governor. He says, in the time of a pandemic, I have emergency powers, and they include the subject matter that you and I are discussing. So the the law says the governor can suspend certain regulatory laws, such as uh, he can suspend licensing for out-of-state nurses to come work here. It doesn't say that he can use his power to stop uh, other people from responding to the emergency. The, the law gives the local authorities the response, uh, the responsibility to handle that uh, response at the local level. And that's the way Texas is. Texas believes in local control and, and, and less government, but closest to the people. The governor wants to uh, turn that on his head and be in charge of that local response. But the problem is the governor is just one person. He can't keep his finger on the pulse of 254 counties, their business community, their health community, and all the people that I talk to every day in trying to do my best to keep these folks safe. Judge, it's going to be interesting to watch this play out. Thank you so much for being here, Judge Clay Jenkins. Thank you, Michael. When it comes to school mask mandates for our kids, respected doctors disagree. We have a parent here tonight who's also a journalist, and she'll tell us the facts that led her to pull her kids from a classroom. And a member of that parent's school board here as well to let us know what she's seeing. That's next. School's once again a battleground over COVID safety. It's not just because the mask debate is steeped in politics. Some doctors are at odds over the science, questioning the needs for masks on kids. But others cite new research like this. Based on data from 1 million students and staff in North Carolina, it shows universal masking led to a less than 1% chance of transmission from a child with COVID. As this plays out in the real world, too many students and teachers are facing setbacks. Take Cobb County Schools, the second largest school district in Georgia. Masks are encouraged there, but they're not mandated. So far, more than 700 COVID cases have been reported since schools reopened on August 2nd. That's a small percentage of the total kids in the district, 0.69% of all students. But then again, it's only been a week and a half and the numbers are climbing by the day. The situation has forced some parents, like my next guest, to pull her kids from the classroom. Nicole Carr is also a reporter with ProPublica. She recently wrote about her family's experience. Also with us, Sharice Davis, a Cobb County school board member. Welcome to both of you. So, Nicole, it seems that you showed up at school for an open house. There stands the principal without wearing a mask, and it's downhill from there. It was downhill for us from there. Uh, We passed the principal, and you read in the piece that uh, most of the front office staff was unmasked, and it was a it was a 50-50 toss-up as to what you would see when you would walk in the classroom. Uh, but the point that was really made in the classroom is that there will be no bullying one way or the other about someone's personal choice. I cannot ask your child about a mask. Uh, you cannot ask me about one. 
Uh, we're going back full capacity in places like the cafeteria, some of the measures, many of the social distancing measures that were in place the year prior would not be in place now. And so I've recognized that with change in behavior, we see different dynamics with this evolving pandemic and a, a type of COVID that we were not dealing with when we made our choices to send the children back to school. How did you read the room? And by that, I mean, did other parents seem okay with what they were seeing and feeling? Some parents were okay with it. Others hesitated to ask the questions and it became the center of our chats. You're in mom groups, you text one another, you're talking to your neighbors. And you have a feeling in the school that this is something we won't talk about. We stick to what the district says, and this is non-negotiable. But when you step back, it's like holding your breath and waiting for the person to bring it up or waiting to see if anybody else is bothered by it. And that was happening. And especially as the doors of the school opened and we began to see the cases rise. Sharice, is what Nicole is describing a one-off? or typical of what you're seeing elsewhere? Very, very typical. We are getting so many emails and calls, um, messages on social media, just explaining just how terrified parents are. One thing that I've been struck by in talking to families is how many of our young students um, have some very serious health issues. And so for them, this is truly a matter of life or death. Um, they want their kids to be well. They want their kids to learn. I think most people want their kids in person, um, in the school building and learning, but they want to know that we're doing so as safely as possible. And so we're hearing from a lot of people that are really, really terrified um, and, have, and they're having to make some very tough decisions about how to educate their children and where to do it. Um, but we're also starting to hear from a lot of parents who they want their choice. They want their choice to be able to send their child in a mask or not. Um, and we still, I get emails to this day that call this a pandemic. Um, they just, you know, they don't want to believe that it's as serious as it is. Cherise, I know you're part of a Democratic minority on the school board. Does this issue break along party lines? It does. Uh, we are, we are a partisan board. We run by party. Um, typically, if we're making the best decision for kids, none of that should matter. But as we know in this country, if you're vaccinated, if you uh, think masks should be mandated, you know, we can make some assumptions about your political ideology. And of course, we can't fight a pandemic as a nation um, with that kind of thought. And so the same kind of divisiveness, the same kind of conspiracies and all of that that you may hear at the national level, it exists on our board as well, unfortunately. Nicole, did you think you'd end up with children at a virtual charter school? No, no. Uh, like Cherise said, I think the common denominator here is that most parents, uh, we all want our kids back in school. We have to have a baseline, though, in which we operate. So if the baseline isn't going to be the public health guidance that's coming from the state's top doctor, and if it's not going to be the guidance that is coming uh, from your county health director who continuously addresses places uh, or people who allow her to come in and address them, like the board of commissioners. Um, 
YouTube, however she can get this message out. If, if public health is no longer the guidance for the guidance you're formulating, then what is our baseline in moving forward? I think that's the question that hasn't been answered yet and what you see reflected in the reporting. Charisse, a quick observation. The CDC is located close to you folks, right? I mean, a bit ironic that this is playing itself out in the shadow of where these guidances come from. Right. It's 20 miles away, uh, the CDC is. But, you know, one thing that's also has occurred to me is that a lot of people just have these issues with the CDC, but the reality is that they are not the only ones that are saying that kids should wear masks in schools. We have the uh, Georgia Association of uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. We have also um, our local Cobb Douglas um, County Public Health Department, which we followed those guidelines last year. We mandated masks. Um, We actually were virtual for some time. And this year in the height of a new variant and when this is uh, super dangerous for our kids, we are not following those guidelines. We are doing the opposite. And, um, you know, we, we educate future scientists and doctors, and we're very, very proud of that. Um, but we're not following our scientists and doctors today. I worry that this is a microcosm of what is or is about to play itself out all across the country. Nicole Carr, thank you. Good luck. Sharice Davis, appreciate you being here. Thank you. To the crisis overseas, Afghanistan is falling to the Taliban fast as President Biden pulls our troops out after nearly two decades. Did he make the right call? And will we be able to get all our diplomatic personnel out safely? The Pentagon says troops are on the move as we speak for that mission. And that's next. Around 3,000 U.S. troops are being sent to Afghanistan to help get embassy staff out as the Taliban continue to make rapid gains. Four more cities fell into the Taliban's hands, including the country's second biggest, Kandahar. The U.S. embassy in Kabul now telling its people to destroy sensitive materials, quote, which could be misused in propaganda efforts. The Pentagon spokesman says he's certainly concerned. Watch. Certainly deep, deeply concerning the speed with which the Taliban has been able to move. What has been disconcerting to see is that there hasn't been that will, that political leadership, the military leadership, and the ability to push back on the Taliban as they've advanced. Let's discuss with the experts, retired Major General James Spider Marks and Aaron David Miller. Major General, I think you were West Point class of 75, so educated in the shadow of Vietnam. Are we witnessing Saigon falling in 75 redux? Yeah, Michael, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, we are. Um, one month before I was commissioned, um, we watched and, we, and the faculty, all of our faculty members at West Point in 1975 during those early 70s were all Vietnam vets. They had buried a, good, a large number of their classmates. This was an incredibly emotional, cathartic moment when we saw the embassy collapse. Um, and we had to get out of town as quickly as possible. And we remember those images. Uh, we want to try to prevent that this time in the airport in Kabul. We're doing it in a very in a very measured way, I hope, with the delivery of some additional troops to make sure we can keep the Taliban at bay. Bear in mind, the Taliban have they've taken over all the equipment that we left behind that the Afghan forces were supposed to use to resist the Taliban and to provide levels of security. They walked away from all of that. The Taliban now own that kit and they can use that against 
our embassy personnel, they can use that, and they have used that to take over these various provincial capitals and to move on Kabul. What I hope we see is a measured departure, and the sad part of all of this is it's probably going to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So the images juxtaposed could be Saigon 75, Kabul 2001, and, and here we are 20 years later after 9-11. That's an unfortunate image. Aaron, should the president reverse course? Absolutely not. I think these are tough choices and many hands contributed to this, Michael. Many administrations and history. Uh, the Brits in the 19th century, the Russians in the 20th century, were the, were, and the Americans in the 21st century all met the unhappy, extremely difficult challenge of Afghanistan. Now, Biden had the courage, I think, the political courage. The execution, uh, in some respects, leaves a lot to be desired, particularly with respect to uh, the scores of thousands of Afghan interpreters and um, um, colleagues who fought alongside and, and aided uh, American forces. Getting those out, those people out, 20,000 plus, I think could have been done much earlier. But no, on the issue of whether or not Biden should have continued to deploy thousands of American combat forces in Afghanistan? I think the answer is absolutely not. This was a trillion dollar social science experiment. I don't mean to trivialize the sacrifices of the men and women who died and the at least 20,000 who received life-changing injuries. But the reality is our goals were inflated. There was no way we could accomplish them. And frankly, uh, keeping our troops there uh, on the assumption that we could somehow not lose the war, but never win it, I think was a permanent uh, RX for bleeding American credibility even further. General, was it inevitable? I talked about this on radio today, heard from people who said, hey, if it were 10 years from now, 50 or 100 years from now, same outcome. I think it, I think it absolutely is inevitable. That, as Aaron described so very well, we entered into Afghanistan with some very clear mission states statements that was to defeat the Taliban, to defeat al-Qaeda. We did that in very quick order, and then we overreached, and we started to expand our requirements because the real defeat of al-Qaeda, remember, Taliban went away immediately because we made them go away. Without, without the mission against al-Qaeda, we continued to progress against that, and in order to do that appropriately, we needed to begin a counterinsurgency operation, and that requires some incredible investments across the board, and we started to grow, we got caught, and as a result, we got lost. So it was a strategic failure on our part, but let's bear in mind, those service members that served on the ground in Afghanistan won every fight they got into, deployed themselves, and honored this nation exceptionally well. It's just the senior leaders failed them. Aaron, I know that you've negotiated in the Middle East on behalf of Republican and Democratic administrations, secretaries of state. What are our allies in that part of the world saying tonight? You know, I think there is a there is a this notion out there that somehow American credibility has been fundamentally undermined or permanently undermined, that our allies, South Korea, Japan, Germany, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, France, will somehow look at this departure, this sort of chaotic departure, and think to themselves, can America really ever be trusted? I don't buy that, Michael. I really don't. We invested 
2,300 American lives, scores of thousands of Afghans, trillions of dollars. Uh, and we, we fought well, as General Marx uh, 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 simply s- stated, but it was time to depart. And I can't imagine anyone, uh, perhaps with the exception of the Iranian government, uh, is going to hold us responsible over time uh, for this departure. One more point. You know, have you ever heard the expression in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car? People don't wash rental cars because they care, sadly, perhaps, to a fault only about what they own. The real challenge we faced in Afghanistan was getting local ownership and buy-in training an Afghan military that was was prepared to fight on behalf of a kleptocratic, corrupt government, un, underpaid, sometimes not paid at all. The Taliban, on the other hand, well-motivated, interested in pushing the infidel out, finding a place in heaven, fighting for honor or whatever. We and lacked patient. the kind of and leadership that was critical, critical. Right. Patient, patient in a way that we've never had. Final question, General, what happens if Afghanistan becomes a magnet for terrorists around the globe? Do we then go back? If we see what's happening in Afghanistan going forward, that looks like, to your point, a, a redux of, of 9-11. Remember, Taliban was in charge before 9-11, and they had uncontrolled space, ungoverned space within Afghanistan, which allowed al-Qaeda to grow, to train, to prepare and to then launch and execute the attacks of 9-11. We have to be able to have very good eyes, good intelligence as best we can now that the government in Kabul is about to go away, but we have to do our very best because if it looks like that the various terrorist elements that are in Afghanistan, remember, this is an old unholy trinity of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Taliban, and they don't get along. We have to keep our eyes on that because we cannot allow ourselves to have a repeat of 9-11. So the short answer is yes. We're going to have to do something in a very precise way if we see the conditions repeat themselves. General Marks, Aaron David Miller, nice to see you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Back to the war at home on COVID. Many of the vaccinated have had it with the unvaccinated, and there's new polling to back that up. It seems to be across party lines. So what could it mean come election time for politicians holding back on immunization efforts? Keen insight from a very brilliant mind, next. With surging cases and hospitalizations and a fair share of Americans still unvaccinated, many are wondering where the U.S. is headed. More mandates or more strides against them? My next guest says it's not just vaccinated Democrats getting to the end of their rope with unvaccinated folks, but vaccinated Republicans, too. We bring in now Ron Brownstein to discuss another great piece, Ron, in The Atlantic. So has the vax versus unvaxxed replaced R's versus D's, D's versus R's? Yeah, first of all, thanks for that nice introduction, Michael, and good evening. Uh, Look, not entirely, but substantially. Uh, Right now, uh, over four-fifths of Democrats have been vaccinated, and about half of Republicans. Republicans are divided almost evenly between those who have and have not been vaccinated. And as you might expect, the vaccinated Democrats are supportive of just about every idea you can think of to put more pressure on the unvaccinated, whether it's mandates, whether it's uh, vaccine passports, whether it's 
its mask requirements. And as you might suspect, the half of Republicans who are unvaccinated oppose just about any idea that you can think of to put more pressure on the unvaccinated. What's striking to me, and I was able to kind of tease out by working with a number of pollsters, is that if you look at the half of Republicans who are vaccinated, a substantial component of them are also in the same place as the Democrats and support tougher measures. Depending on the question, somewhere between a third to a half of all vaccinated Republicans uh, are supportive of mandates and and passports uh, and mask requirements. And what's most striking to me of all is that two thirds of the vaccinated Republicans along with basically 90% of the vaccinated Democrats, point the finger at the unvaccinated when asked why the cases are going up again. Okay, does that mean then that Governors Abbott and DeSantis are rolling the dice? Yes, I, I do. I think it is. I, I, and, and not only them. I mean, w- when you hear DeSantis or Abbott or many Republican leaders, even at the national level, talk about where we are on the vaccination push, their focus is on the rights and the choice uh, of the unvaccinated. I mean, interestingly, that they're kind of pro-choice in this consequence. And even though they might say, yes, the vaccine is a good idea, in the next breath, they will say, uh, but we have to respect the choice and the rights of those who don't want to get vaccinated. I think that's somewhat out of sync with where the public is headed, because one of the promises of the vaccine was that you would get your normal life back after you got a vaccine. And that promise is being pulled away. And as I said, when really asked why it's being pulled, the way. Uh, uh, the vaccinated in both parties are looking at the unvaccinated. I think there some of these Republican leaders like DeSantis and Abbott, not to mention the immediate risk they face of further spread of this among young people in the schools. North Texas, for example, reported yesterday, no pediatric ICU beds uh, that are open. So obviously they are taking a big risk by going to court and trying to undo mass mandates uh, uh, you know, while that is happening. Uh, but I think more broadly, by focusing solely on the unvaccinated, I think they are missing the moment of where the country is heading. You synthesized a lot of data in this piece in The Atlantic, which is what made it so great. Uh, I should know the pronunciation because he and I must be related. I Mm. think Nick Gurevich is one of the pollsters that you relied on. And as I interpreted his findings, they suggested there's not this consensus against the unvaccinated. Explain. Well, there's not a consensus for vaccine mandates at this point. I mean, the public is pretty closely divided when you ask about the various kinds of vaccine mandates that might be imposed on uh, federal workers or healthcare workers or educators or requirements for a vaccine to get on an airplane. The country is still evenly, pretty evenly divided. But as I show in the piece, among the vaccinated, Uh, There is a much stronger consensus for all of those measures, including, as I said, a substantial portion, uh, somewhere between a third and a half of the vaccinated Republicans. And I think that points the direction of where this will go uh, if, in fact, uh, caseloads remain high and the promise of normal life recedes. I think as the the number of people who have been vaccinated increases and potentially as the caseload remains high, I do think there's going to be growing support for tougher measures. There's also going to be growing need for it because as I'm sure you've talked about uh, either here or on the radio, because the, the, the Delta variant is so much more contagious, the experts say we probably need now to get to about 85 or even 90 percent of the country vaccinated to reach herd immunity. And I think the evidence is overwhelming uh, that we're not going to get there without tougher measures. One other key polling number here, among Republicans who are not vaccinated in one poll by Kaiser, 60 percent 
60% of unvaccinated Republicans said taking the vaccine is a bigger risk than getting the disease. Hard to imagine you're going to get uh, to where you need to be in terms of overall vaccination numbers, given those attitudes solely with carrots. Uh, you may need some sticks eventually. Quick final question. I'm a believer that more and more elections are being decided by motivation, not by persuasion. There aren't many people left in the country that are persuadable, sad as that sounds. So wherein lies the passion? Look, Look forward to 2022, to the midterm on this issue. Is there more passion among the unvaccinated who say, don't tread on me, or the vaccinated like me who are saying, hey, go get your shot? Well, obviously, the unvaccinated have kind of taken this. uh, What what Trump and others have done is kind of make this into a culture war fight. And we know that as a general proposition, President Biden is trying to lower the temperature on all culture war fights. And as we talked about before, focus on kitchen table issues. Uh, So uh, on the vaccine mandates, he is treading very carefully beyond the federal government in the same way that he's not really putting guns uh, or uh, immigration or LGBTQ rights front and center. But I do think it's a moving target. The question is, what does life look like for the vaccinated heading forward? If they are, if their promise of a return to normal life is continually frustrated by the actions of the unvaccinated, I could see them getting pretty energized about this too. Rock me on the water. A good song and a better, and a better book. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Michael. Some police officers around the country ignoring mandates and threatening to quit if they're forced to get vaccinated. My next guest says good riddance, and that's coming up. Day after day, more private companies are requiring their employees to be vaccinated or face consequences. Legal experts say those businesses are within their rights. But what about public employees, namely police officers? We're seeing some around the nation threatening to quit if they're ordered to get vaccinated. In an opinion piece for The Washington Post, CNN political and economic commentator Catherine Rampell says, good riddance to all the anti-vax police officers. And she joins me now. Catherine, to what other professions, if any, would you extend this same logic? Uh, look, I think everyone should get vaccinated, but I think the people who Me too. most, yes, who, who have the greatest obligation to get vaccinated are people who are there to serve the public, who come into frequent contact with the public and therefore put the people who they are supposed to be protecting and serving at risk. So I would put into that category, of course, police officers, but certainly lots of other professions, too, where there is great risk if uh, patients or customers or or taxpayers, what have you, may come into contact with them and therefore be at greater risk of contracting COVID. So people who work at nursing homes, healthcare workers, healthcare Uh, workers, firefighters, EMTs. Yes, they should absolutely be vaccinated. Everyone should be vaccinated, but especially those people, um, particularly when they're being paid by taxpayers. Are you necessarily a bad cop if you won't get vaccinated? I don't think you are, but I do think that this is a very useful litmus test for 
sorting out which police officers are most likely to be interested in uh, public safety and in public service and the ones who are more likely to think that they're above the law. They're not interested in evidence-based policy. Uh, They're there for the wrong reasons. So I think this is an excellent opportunity to clear law enforcement ranks of their worst officers. Um, You know, if if these cops want to defund themselves, Okay, but now listen, listen, I, I said a moment ago, are they necessarily bad cops? And you said no. Now you're saying clear the deck of their worst. In the column, quote, let the bad cops go and replace them with officers actually committed to the noble mission to protect and serve. By the way, I looked at the comments. There were like 2,000 comments appended to your piece in the post, all cheering you on and seeing a lot of Trumpism, you know, insinuating that, well, if it's a cop who won't get a vaccine, they must be a Trump person and the hell with them. Look, again, I think this is a useful litmus test. It's not a perfect one, but I think the people who are most likely to reject a lawful order to get vaccinated, to, again, protect themselves, protect their colleagues, protect the children of their colleagues, and to protect the public at large, whom they are supposed to be protecting and serving, those are the ones who um, are are most likely uh, to be the ones we don't want. We have been trying for a very long time to sort out the good apples from the bad apples. There are all sorts of psychological screening exams that cops go through before they before they join the force. But it is very difficult to sort out ex ante who the good ones are, who the bad ones are, who, who's there for the right reason. And I think most police officers are there for the right reason. And even when you find out right. that a law enforcement officer shouldn't have been there because they have a bad record of excessive use of force or what have you, it's hard to get rid of them. I'm saying if these people want to demonstrably show that they are not interested in putting public safety above their their own whims, then then let them go. Uh, I think it it is a a useful... And and where I'm coming from is to say, where I'm coming from is to say, I think everyone in the public, I think everybody should be vaccinated. And I think that more employers like CNN, like the law firm where I'm associated, should have mandatory vax policies. The only pushback that I'm offering you is that the piece clearly does say you're a bad seed. If you're a cop and you won't get vaccinated, I'm giving more of them the benefit of the doubt. Well, convince them or say, get a different job. Um, maybe they're not bad people, but they should not be in this line of work. That's basically what I'm saying. Their job is to put the public's interests above their own. Uh, It's a hard job. I I acknowledge that. And again, I think most people in this line of work are good people. But maybe you're not cut out for this line of work. Maybe you're not a bad person. I mean, bad apple can mean different things, of course. Maybe you're not a bad person, but you are not cut out for this line of work. And, And I don't really believe that the number of cops who who are threatening to quit will actually quit. Um, I I think there's a little bit of bluffing going on here, particularly since if they do leave early, they're likely to give up all sorts of benefits and seniority and and pensions and things like that. But there will be some who may. I hope you're... There will be some who may. And look, if they they want to self-select, let them. (laughs) Got it. Thank you, Catherine. Provocative piece. Appreciate it very much. And we'll be right back. Thank you so much for watching. Please join me tomorrow and every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern for Smirkanish right here on CNN. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.